to study Exodus 24. So if you've got your Bibles, Exodus 24 is where we're going to be. Uh, and, and so let's flip, let's flip to Exodus 24. While you're doing that, uh, if, you all, if you have a physical Bible, I would, I would recommend that you flip all because we're going to kind of utilize both those passages. You can stick your bulletin in Hebrews 9 and 10 just for quick flipping back and forth. So Exodus 24 is where we're going to be, and in Exodus 24, we see, see a hugely significant moment in the life of the Israelites. January 7th, 2012, was the, well, not the, but one of the most life-changing days in my life. I got married. That's right. She's not here today. We got sick, sick kiddos, but... That was the day where Jordan and I had a covenant ceremony in which two people became one flesh. And the trajectory of our life from that point forward changed. Now, my care was not just for me. I had someone else that I was responsible for. Uh, my, my focus, my, my, whole, my whole thought process was different because of that day and because of that moment. And in Exodus 24... Maybe the closest thing that we can compare to what happens in this chapter is a wedding ceremony. As a matter of fact, I haven't done the research, but, but I think that there might be some elements that exist in our marriage ceremonies today that are, are derived out of this. So I don't know that. I could see how they get there. But before we read Exodus 24, we have to back up a little bit. And I know we back up every Sunday to remind you of the story of the Israelites. But if you read Exodus 24 in isolation, you miss the big picture of what God is doing here. So, so we're not going to go all the way to be the beginning of Exodus, but if you'll remember in Exodus chapter 19, the Israelites arrive at the base of Mount Sinai. And they get there. When they get to Mount Sinai, God says to Moses, tell the people to consecrate themselves because I'm going to come talk to them. So they take two days and they consecrate themselves. And then God descends onto the top of Mount Sinai in a cloud which that cloud, remember, has been protecting them, and they've had the pillar of fire leading them. So God descends, the glory of God descends on this mountain in front of all the Israelites who have now consecrated themselves. The whole people are gathered here looking at this mountain, and God begins to speak. And it sounds like trumpets, and it's loud, and it's this awesome moment that we can't even begin to comprehend. And God begins to speak, and he speaks to them, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. And the people hear the ten words, and do you know how they respond once God speaks to them in the ten words? Stop talking to us. I'm afraid that you're going you're gonna to kill me. Even though I've consecrated myself, I'm not good enough for this. Moses, you go talk to God on our behalf. So, so, so Moses goes up the mountain, and God speaks to Moses. And then Mo God tells Moses the next three chapters, the rest of chapter 20, 21, 22, 23. So we find Moses in Exodus 24, ch chapter... Chapter 24, verse 1, we find him sitting at the base of the cloud, God having just spoken to him all the previous chapters, okay? So now with that in your mind's eye, let's see what chapter 24, verses 1 through 18 say. Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. And the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord 
He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel went up, And they saw God. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. God, thank you for Exodus 24. God, I think what you have for us in this passage is rich and glorious. God, may we behold you. May we see you. May we dine with you. May we fellowship with you. God, may we love you. Lord, use your word to convict us. God, I'm thankful that it promises us that it doesn't return void, but that it pierces both heart and mind. So God, we're asking you, Holy Spirit, by your power, do that today. Pierce our hearts and our minds, God, and change us. God, thank you for a new and better covenant. Thank you for a Holy Spirit who helps. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I have to summarize all of this into one phrase... If I have to summarize what God is doing in Exodus 24, it's simply this. It's that God is enabling a relationship. God is enabling a relationship. And we're going to see, we're going to see God do it in four ways. We're going to see God enable his relationship through his man. We're going to see God enable a relationship on his terms. We're going to see why he does it. He does it for their benefit and for his glory. So the first thing we see is we see God enabling relationship through his man. So back to chapter one, or chapter, verse 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Now, where is Moses? He's up on the mountain. So when God gives him this instruction, what does it mean Moses has to do? He's got to go back down the mountain. He's got to go back down the mountain. He's got to get these people. And what is he got, why is he getting these people? What's the purpose of the elders and, and the, the leaders of Israel? What's the purpose of them coming to the Lord? To worship, to worship from afar. The relationship that God has with his people is rooted in their worship from him. And what's amazing about this and what happens in this chapter is chapter 24 is really the first corporate worship service that we see ordained by God for his people. There is other times before scripture where God's people come to worship him, but this moment right now 
is the first corporate worship service. So, so in order for these people to have worship, though, God sets some limits, right? In order for you to come and worship, only Moses alone shall come near. None of the elders, none of the other people shall come up with him. Why? Why would God only allow Moses to draw near to him? Why can't everybody else, why can't the leaders, why can't the common people of Israel draw near to God? Well, if you remember back in chapter 19, the people of Israel had consecrated themselves. They had made themselves holy so that they could hear the word of God. But in chapter 20, after hearing the ten words, they find out God is so awesome and powerful that even my best effort at consecrating myself falls short. So, so God is, is setting a limit for his people because the people are not holy, and God is. God is a holy God that wants his people to draw near to him, to worship him, but they can't draw totally close to him because his holiness will consume them. So, so the people, in, in this first verse, what God is doing is, is, he's, is he's teaching the people of Israel to respect the holiness of God. The holiness of God is an all-consuming, all-powerful thing, and if you don't honor it, you will be consumed by it. So the second thing that God is showing us, is, show, is showing the people in Israel is, I want to draw near to you, but, but I can't because you're not holy, so there has to be someone to go between. There has to be a mediator. Now, what's a mediator? When do, you, when do you need a mediator? You need a mediator when you have problems, right? We think of Russia and Ukraine right now, and, and they're, they're talking about, uh, I read this morning or last night, that um, they wanted to meet in Belarus. Russia wanted to meet Ukraine and Belarus to, to discuss peace talks. But do you know where Russia's launching part of their attacks from? Belarus. Like, that's not going to work as a mediator. We've got a problem here. Right, so, so I've read that they're talking about Israel. We could have Israel come be the mediator for us because Israel, in some other issues, uses Russia to help them. But they also kind of partner with Ukraine. So, so Israel kind of has this unique relationship with both Ukraine and with Russia that, that maybe they can mediate this. Have, have you ever been a mediator? I got to be a mediator once. I had some friends that they wanted us to help or wanted me to help try and reconcile the two of them. And, and I'll be honest, in a me it's just something that's like, I have no clue what I was doing, right? Like, I just, I didn't know, and, and I don't know if I did a good or bad job. I just, I was there. So, so being a mediator takes a, is a unique position uh, that, that both parties have to have some sort of trust in. And what do we see God use as a mediator? Well, in the book of Exodus, it's clear. It's Moses, right? Moses is God's chosen man. And what does Moses spend his life doing? He goes up the mountain, and he talks to God. And then he comes back down the mountain, and he talks to the people of Israel. Here's what God said. And then the people of Israel fail miserably, so Moses goes back up the mountain. God, please don't destroy them. And then Moses goes back down the mountain. God won't destroy you, but you will be punished. And here's his word. Obey his word. They fail again. God, Moses goes back up the mountain. What is Moses' life spent doing? That dude had to be in great shape. Like, think about that guy's legs, man. That had to be tree trunks. Of course he lived to 120. He, the guy had to be in really good shape. Now, here's, here's the beauty of God and his economy. God hasn't changed. He is a holy God, and we as a common people are an unholy people. We cannot draw near to him 
because of our unholiness. Church, we look at the life of Israel and we go, how in the world could you guys be so foolish? Like God literally just parted the ocean and you walked through on dry ground and, and you sang a song and then the next chapter you're complaining about bitter water. So naturally they throw a stick in the water and it's sweet. And God, God performs a miracle and you get excited and then you go two more days in the desert and you complain again. Like we look at Israel and we're like, there is a cloud following you and a pillar of, what is wrong with these people? But then I look at us and I go, man, we've got the word of God that we can study every day of the week. And we've got the people of God that we can talk to literally at any moment. And we can walk outside and we can behold the God of creation who is sovereign over the seasons, who changes hot to cold in a day's time. And yet, just like Israel, we forget. We want the wrong things. We love the wrong things. We worship the wrong things. We think about the wrong things. We end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So just like Israel, we need a mediator to speak to God on our behalf. Church, it's important that you recognize today that we are not any different than these people. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, idol worship, repeated rebellion against the holy God, that describes us. But thanks be to God that according to, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God enabled a relationship with Israel through the mediator Moses. But the problem with Moses was that Moses could never close the gap between the holiness of God and the unholiness of his people. But what God gave us in Jesus was a mediator who made us holy. Hebrews, I told you we're going to flip back and forth to Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 15. Speaking of Jesus, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. What's the first covenant? That's what we're talking about right here. Jesus has redeemed us and has given us a new covenant. Moses was a good mediator, but Jesus was a better mediator. Outside of him, you cannot have access to God. Because you are unholy. Church, you were created to live in a relationship with him. People, people were created to live in a relationship to God, their creator. And the only way that you can do that is to come through his man. So, so, so God is showing us in the first two verses of Exodus 24 that he desires to have a relationship with you that's rooted in worship. But the only way that is accomplished is through his man. And then in verses 3 through 8, we find that the only way that we can come to him through his man is according to his terms. So God enables a relationship with him on his terms. Now, remember, God is holy. So Moses can't just at any point go strolling up into the cloud, right? The high priest, when we read later on through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he doesn't get to walk into the Holy of Holies whenever he wants. No, they have to come on God's terms. So in verses 3 through 8, we're going to see 
two major themes that constitute God's terms. The first one is God's word, and the second is a sacrifice. So I'm going to read three through eight, and then we're going to look at God's word for a minute. Moses came and told the people all the words of the, of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let's, let's try and contextualize again. Remember, people of Israel are sitting at the base of the mountain because they didn't want to hear God speak to them. So Moses goes up. God tells him to come down. So here comes Moses back down the mountain. And I, I, I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us what, what happens. But I would assume that the people of Israel are just sitting at the base of the mountain looking up there going, I hope Moses makes it because we weren't, you know, like, and then all of a sudden, Moses is coming down the mountain. What, what's, what's their spirit like whenever Moses is descending? He's alive, and he's got something from God for us. Like, I, I would assume that the people have a sense of anticipation and excitement and maybe fear as they wait to hear what Moses says. So, so Moses, he, he comes down the mountain and he tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Now, if you remember when we preached through the Ten Commandments, Jeremy made a big emphasis on, instead of calling it the Ten Commandments, maybe a better way to, to describe it would be the Ten Words. And the reason we do that is the rest of Scripture. All the words of the Lord. So, so Moses is communicating to them again the Ten Commandments, and then all the rules, which would be the subsequent chapters, 20 through 23. So Moses communicates all these things to the people, and how do the people respond? Amen. All that the Lord has said, we will do. They're excited about it. Now, this moment is huge. It, it's, it's a really big moment in the life of Israel. I don't know, how Jeremy, how you do weddings. I don't know what y'all's wedding was like, but I remember my wedding and the way I was trained to do weddings. And, and so I, I can remember, you know, we, we were married at First Baptist Church Lubbock, which was a big church. And, and I can remember them opening the doors, and I was standing at the altar waiting on my bride to be brought to me, and, and I, had, I was quivering like a, just a baby. I just, my chin, I was, I was terrified. I was scared. I was excited. Uh, I, I, the weight of till death do us part was like really settling in. Like that, was, that was a, like, yeah, this is the girl I want to marry. Till death do us part is a long time when you're 22. Like, it's a long ways away. So, so you have this sense of like, oh, this is scary, and I'm quivering, and her dad's walking her down, and my wife looks at me and says, suck it up. Cry on the inside like a winner. Like, she, she just, she really did tell me, chin up, you know, like, you're okay. And, and so, so she's walking down. I'm just like, whoa. And, and her dad's standing here, and she's standing there, and, you know, we, the, Bruce, our pastor, says, everybody be seated. Thanks for coming. Open in a word of prayer. And then he does what's called a declaration of intent at the beginning of the wedding. This is the purpose of marriage. He explains it. And then he looks at me and he says, Matt, will you take Jordan to be your wife? And I say, I will. 
Jordan, will you take Matt to be your husband? And she says, I will, thankfully. And then he says, who gives this woman to this man? And her dad says, her mother and I. And hands her to me, and then we go up the stairs, and the ceremony proceeds. What's happening in verses 2, or 3, in verse 3, is the declaration of intent. It is the people, God declaring his word through Moses, this is what we're entering into, and the people respond and say, I'm all in, right? So, so it's, a, it's the beginning of a ceremony. <clears throat> now, the people respond. They respond positively. And then what does Moses do after, after they assent, mentally, verbally assent to what Moses has told them? Verse 4. Moses writes down all the words of the Lord. Now, this is a this is a. This is important for us to sit and to think about for a second. The writing down of God's word is giving the people a sense of permanence. It's showing that what we're committing to will last forever. It's not something that can be changed, and it's something that we're going to hand down to the next generation. They're not going to rely on oral tradition. Rather, they're going to rely on the written word of God that God gives to them. Church, do you see why this is significant. It's something that's permanent. It's something that's handed down. It's not something that can be changed. It's something that lasts forever. And the other thing is, it's God's word. And because it's God's word, we know it can be good, and we know it can be true. So Moses writes this word down after the people have committed to it, and then they begin this really weird ceremony. He wakes up the next morning early, so the people have had a chance to kind of process, now, yeah, I'm good with this, we'll sleep on it, and we'll talk about this again tomorrow, just to, just to double check, right? Uh, so, so they wake up early the next morning, they build this altar, they build these pillars, they make these sacrifices, after they make these sacrifices, Moses throws blood on the altar, and then after he throws the blood on the altar, what does Moses do again? He reads the word a second time. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Why did Moses read the word a second time? Well, there's a couple reasons. First is, this is part of a ceremony. So ceremonially, you have parts of ceremonies. Like you, It's just part of the ceremony. But secondly... The first one is a declaration of intent. The second, second reading is like the signing of a contract. Now, I look across this room, and I know a lot of people in here have a lot of experience with signing a contract. When you sit down to write a contract with somebody, you don't just show up and say, hey, let's make an agreement, write it down, sign it, and that's it, right? No, in, in a contractual agreement, the contract is made, it's sent to you, you think about it for a day or two, then you have some sort of ceremony, although it may not be real pompous, may not have a big, you know, something to do. Uh, and then there's a signing of the signing of the declaration. So, if you, if you think about contracts, there's certain kinds of contracts that we all have a part of, and some of them we don't care about, right? I just want to upgrade my iPhone. I agree to your terms and conditions. Just download and update. I want Netflix. I want Disney Plus. I don't care what your terms are. Here's my money. Let me watch TV. I, I want AT&T because T-Mobile doesn't work. Just, I don't care. Yes, just give me a phone and a cell phone service that works. But then there's some contracts where we become lawyers real fast, 
right? So uh, I signed, we signed a contract, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks ago with Coronado Feed Yard for our wheat, our wheat crop, right? And, and when they send us this contract, which we've done this for years, but you know what happens? We sit down and we read that contract. I want to know what I'm getting into and what I'm committing to because there's legal and financial ramifications for this contract. And, and if I got problems, I, I want to deal with this on the front end, not later on down the road. Now, is the contract good? Well, yeah. If, if we live in the terms of the contract, they benefit, we benefit, there's no problems. But what happens when you break the contract? Then it becomes a problem. Then, then we have to deal with stuff. So, so we look at a contract, and, and we see them as good, and we know that when we live in them, live inside of that contract, it, it's a good thing. Church, the Word of God is not a contract. It's so much more important than that. And the reading of God's Word always demands a response from the hearer. So when Moses reads to the people of Israel the book of the covenant again, again, which is just 19 through 23, like that's all that Moses is reading. That's their scriptures to this point. When he reads that, the people can't be indifferent and just check the box and say, yes, update. No, this demands an actual response and commitment from the people. Because if you exist outside of this contract, there's problems. But if you live inside of the contract, there's life. So church, the question that we have to ask is, is if the word of God is this important to him in order for us to live in a relationship with him, do you, are you committed to knowing and responding to his word? The people of Israel only had a few chapters but they commit with vigor. Not only do they say all that the Lord has spoken we will do, but they also say we will be obedient. There's an extra layer of commitment from the Israelites in knowing and obeying God's word because they see that it's good and that when they come to him according to his terms, they can live in a right relationship with him. So the first major theme that we see in verses 3 through 8 is the importance of God's word and and responding to it rightly. Are you responding to God's word? Are you committed to knowing it? The second thing we see is the sacrifice. Now, this is what makes up the majority of this ceremony. Verse 4, let's back up. And And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, and he rose the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So what's going on here in this moment, there's a ton of symbolism that matters so much for us today. We have got to understand this. Moses builds an altar, and around that altar he builds 12 tribes of Israel, 12 pillars that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then after he does that, he offers these sacrifices on it. There's the burnt offering, and then there's the peace offering. Now, up to this point, you wouldn't know what the burnt of the peace offering is, but we have Leviticus that helps us understand what a burnt offering and what a peace offering is. So a burnt offering would occur when the offerer, the person offering it, they would bring their animal up to the high priest, and then they would put their hand on that animal, and they would slit its throat. And then they would take the animal, all of it, and they would lay it on the altar, and they would burn it. 
and the entire offering would be consumed. Nothing would be left. Nothing would be kept for them. All of it would be consumed in the fire. This costly sacrifice, it represented full atonement for sin and total dedication to God. The burnt offering is the first offering they offer, and then the second is the peace offering. Now, again, same, same type of thing starts. The offerer brings up their peace offering, their animal, goat, sheep, lamb, cow. They bring it up, and they put their hand on the head of the animal, and the high priest slits its throat, and then they capture the blood. And then they take, this is gross, they take the entrails, the guts, and they burn it, and then they take the meat, and they grill it. Now, what's different about the peace offering and the burnt offering, uh, what separates the peace offering is, is that it, is, it, it becomes a communal celebration because they grill that meat, and then they eat it. They enjoy it. What's distinct about this is that fellow worshipers would come and share in the meal that comes from it. It was a fellowship or a communion offering that indicated and enacted the fact that there was peace between God and his people, and that the person, family, or community was therefore in a state of well-being. Here in a second, we're going to study verse 11, where they eat and drink with God, and it's likely that that peace offering was grilled. This is the food that they would consume then. Now, these sacrifices and then throwing this blood on the altar just seems weird and almost kind of archaic and barbaric to us. But what God is doing in this ceremony is ultimately showing his people the heart of the terms in which they must come to him. You see, it's these blood, the blood of these sacrifices is what seals the covenant. It shows that this covenant is literally a matter of life and death. If you break this covenant, then what happened to these animals may it happen to you. That's what happens if you break the covenant. It's a matter of life and death. To enter into it, it took the death of a sacrificial animal. And to break this covenant meant the one who broke it was due the same penalty. However, if you enter into this covenant and you live according to the terms God has set in his word, do you know what you get? You get a relationship to a holy God. You get to know him. You get to eat with him. You get to see him. Inside of this covenant is life. Outside of this covenant was death. I, I love what Philip Ryken has to say as he unpacks this. He says, at the same time, this blood was a sign of God's mercy. God was not simply showing his people that what would happen if they failed, what, what would happen if they failed. He was also showing that there was a way for them to remain in his favor, even after they sinned. To put this another way, although the relationship God established with his people under Moses had a legal basis, ultimately it was a covenant of grace. This was shown by the sprinkling of the blood. First, Moses, he sprinkled it on the altar, which showed that the people's sins were forgiven. This is what a bloody altar always signifies. It, it signifies the forgiveness of sin. It signifies that atonement has been made. God has accepted a sacrifice as a payment for sin. The blood was also a propitiation, which is just a fancy way for saying it turned away God's wrath. Then the blood was sprinkled on the people. This showed that God had accepted their sacrifice and that they were now included in the covenant through the forgiveness of their sins. The blood and therefore its benefits was applied directly to them. 
what God is doing in this moment by allowing a sacrifice of an animal to satisfy the entrance and, and to seal the covenant, what he's showing his people is that he accepts a substitutionary payment. Someone to pay, something else to pay the price for the people's sin. God is setting up something that is going to apply to us today. God's terms here in Exodus 24, 3-8, it enables the nation of Israel to live in a relationship with him. And his system that he gave kindly, it was a good system. However, just like Moses as the mediator could never close the gap between a holy God and an unholy people, so also this sacrificial system would never fully restore God's creation to him. This system was given to symbolize what God needed in order to live in perfect harmony and relationship with his people. Church, just like Israel, we stand in the presence of a holy God who calls us to worship him. And just like Israel, we're obligated to keep God's terms upon the pain of death. And just like Israel, we fail in every way. But while this covenant was good, thanks be to God that he made a better way. Right? Back to, back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, no, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Church, we have a better covenant. Because ours wasn't initiated with the blood of goats and calves. Ours was initiated with the Lamb of God. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, is what Paul tells us in Romans. The blood of Jesus, it justifies you. It's a propitiation. It turns away the wrath of God. Paul says in Ephesians, in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Christ, we are forgiven, we are justified, and the wrath of God is turned away. We are redeemed to be his people. And here's the beauty of it. Ephesians 2.13. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Where does the blood of the covenant in Exodus 24 leave the people of Israel? At the base of the mountain. Where does the blood of the Lamb take us? Near to the Father. Do you see that we have a better mediator and we have a better sacrifice that allows us to live near the Father? If this doesn't excite you and bring joy to your heart, I don't know what will. Church, if you want to know him, if you want to be near him, you must come to him according to his terms. And his terms through his word show us that the only way to be near a holy God is by being covered by the blood of a holy lamb. And this begs the question of us, of the old song, Are You Washed? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? This sacrificial system, this was personal. 
there's plenty of kids in here who show animals. I mean, Baden Brandis, imagine walking your goat up and placing your hand on it while they slit the throat and it bleeds out. That is deeply personal and messy and gross. But it is only by the blood of the Lamb that you can come near to a holy God. So I have to ask you this question. Have you put your hand on the Lamb? Have you claimed the death of Jesus as your own and submitted to Him as Lord? Outside of Christ, there is no propitiation of sin. There is no turning away from God's wrath. He will not be satisfied any other way. But inside of Christ... The wrath of God is satisfied. Is Jesus the lamb that was slain on your behalf? Church, God offers you a relationship through his man and on his terms. But why? Why would God, why would an all-sufficient, all-holy God offer an unholy people such a wonderful thing? Verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Church, God offers a relationship by his man, through his terms, for his people's benefit. Because he is a good God. This ceremony now is concluded. I now pronounce you man and wife. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. And now what do the people get to do? Well, they get to go up, the elders and Moses, and they get to see God and eat. Now here's, there's, there's, a, there's a problem. There's a problem in these verses. We know later on in Scripture that what happens to anyone who sees God? They die. So, so how do we reconcile 24, 9, 10, 11 with the rest of Scripture? Well, it's complicated. We know a few things. They saw the God of Israel, and there were under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. Did the people see God in all his glory? Probably not. They couldn't have done that. Like Moses, when God hid him in a cleft of the rock and God passed by and they got to see, he got to see the train of God's robe. Like Moses, we know that they saw his feet. How did they see his feet? I don't know. They're about to sit down and eat, so maybe the glory of God is so bright that they've got their heads down and all they can see is feet sitting next to him. Maybe. More likely, God's up on the mountain descending to them and they can see they can see his feet because he's coming down on something that appears to be a sapphire. Now, Ezekiel uses this same terminology to describe the throne of the Lord. So, so it's likely that what's going on here in this moment is, is that they're getting to see part of him, but not all of him. And here's the other reason why I think we have to say that they actually did see God. It's verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. What typically happens they die. But what is explicitly stated in this? God doesn't smite them. Smite, smote. God doesn't kill them. Right? 
That's what typically happens, but we see here in verse 11, he didn't. And then the next phrase, they beheld God. Now, that Hebrew word for beheld is a more intense than just seeing. It's like, no, they, they really actually did see him. They actually saw God. And what happens when they saw God? They ate and drank with him. Now, have you ever had people over to your house? You, you, people come eat with you? If you think about it, having people to your house is a kind of a kind of an intimate thing, right? If you come to my house, you see how either how kept or unkept kept it is, which is a little bit of a reflection of me and my wife, right? You see how we've decorated and the things that we own, which again kind of reveals a little bit of who we are. And if you're fortunate and you get to see my children, then you get to see how I am as a parent. And, and what their relationships are, which are, again, a reflection of me and my wife. And then we do something really weird. We sit down at a table for 20 to 30 minutes and look at each other while we eat. Kind of, like, that's that's kind of gross. Like, if I have a pet peeve in life, it's hearing people chew. The other day we had, a, our kids have really uh, fine palates. We had ramen noodles for dinner. Not the good kind of ramen noodles. We had the real cheap United kind of ramen noodles. And uh, Walker was just... And I, I, got, I couldn't do it. I was like, son, I'm either going to throw that away or I'm leaving. And I left. I, I had to get out of the room. God, it was gross. Don't, don't eat. Or, I can't do it. I, I like eating with people, but if it's quiet and I can hear them eat, I die on the inside. Be, being in people's homes and sharing a meal with them is a wildly intimate occasion. And that's exactly what God is doing here with his people. He's showing that when you come to him, through his man, according to him, his terms, you get to experience a real, personal relationship with a holy God. But that's not all. The meal wasn't just God and Moses. The meal was God and Moses and the elders who represent the rest of the people. Remember, the, the peace offering is a communal sacrifice. It represents all of the people. All of the people are invited to this. What God is showing us is that in, when we come to him according to his terms through his man, not only do we get a personal relationship with him, but we get a relationship with each other that is unique. And that relationship with one another is experienced fullness when it's experienced with him. So if you've been with us in Sunday school, and yes, this is an entirely shameless plug to come to Sunday school, we have been and we spent some time this morning in 1 John chapter 1, verse, verse 3 and 4 trying to flip that. I didn't have this marked in my Bible. Actually, I have it written here. 1 John 1, 3 and 4 says this, That which we have seen and hear we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. John is saying, I'm proclaiming the gospel message. I'm proclaiming the new covenant, the terms in which I've, that God has given to us to know him and to come to him. I proclaim to that. I'm proclaiming that to you. And when you believe it, we get to have fellowship with one another. And not only do we get to have fellowship with one another, the latter part of verse 3 says this, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship exists not just for me and you to know each other. Our fellowship exists so that we can all know the Father better. And you know what the beauty of it is? The beauty of it is verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is God's people living in God's presence. What more can you need? It is the people of God in the presence of God sharing fellowship 
with one another that completes the joy of each other because we're both believing, thinking about, looking to our author and perfecter of our faith. Our joy becomes complete because we get to live amongst God's people in God's presence. What more can you need? So what's the point of this? The point of this is come to know him so that we can come to know one another. What's the point of this? The point of this is come to Sunday school so that our joy may be complete. Students come to youth groups so our joy that may be, be, be complete. Eat at each other's houses. Communicate with one another on a weekly, on a daily basis so that our joy may be complete. Point each other to the Father through the Son because that's how we get to know the full fellowship of God the Father. And here's the deal. This meal at Sinai was incredibly unique. I mean, they, these, they're, they're eating and drinking with God, right? This is a wildly unique experience. And it gives us a picture of the reality of the relationship that God has for us. But you know what? This meal ends. And what it does is it points us to another table. And Jesus came and he gave us a table of a new covenant. One that reminds us of his body and his blood that was shed for us. By which we can come near to the Father in worship and in truth and in fellowship and actually know him. But even this table is not the final table. This table points us to a table that awaits us. In which we will all with our brothers and sisters in Brazil and in Scotland and Ukraine and Russia and Africa and Asia, all across the continents of the world, we will all come into the throne room of God and we will behold him face to face and we will eat together and we will be satisfied like we've never been satisfied before. The table in Exodus offers us an example of what we can have. The Lord's table shows us a way to the final table in Revelation where we all celebrate with eternal joy. So church... Eat together. Eat together, remembering, thinking about, pointing one another to what God ultimately has for you. And that's intimate, joyous, worship, worshipful fellowship with him. Now this would be a great spot for us to just stop and take the Lord's Supper. And to think about the table that awaits us. But we still have some verses to go through. So verses 12 through 18, we have seen that God enables a relationship for us by his man through his terms for our benefit, but ultimately all of that is for his glory. The Lord said to Moses, verse 12, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud, went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. God's glory and his kind nature is first seen in verse 12. God says, come up to me so I can give you what? 
I can give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment. I was talking with Will about this yesterday. I used to think of Moses walking down the mountain with two stone tablets. And what was on the stone tablets? This tablet was the first five commandments, and this tablet was the second five commandments. Like, that's what I always had in mind. But that's not what what the stone tablets were. It was more likely that on one side was all ten commandments, and on the other side was the rest of the commandments, the rest of the words, instruction God gives. And in, in a contract, I sign a copy, you sign a copy, and we both have a copy, right? Like, it's not just one person keeps it, both people keep it. So, so what God is doing in giving the two stone tablets to Moses is I'm signing this. And what's he signing it in? Stone. It's permanent. It lasts forever. It's my word. It's good. It's, it's for your instruction, right? He gives it to Moses, and he gives both copies to Moses because God doesn't need a copy. He knows. And we need to be reminded twice as much, right? No, he gives it to Moses to give to the people. So we see God's glory, and we see his kind nature, even in giving us the word of God, which harkens back to the first question. I think it was the first question I asked. Do you know the word of God? Are you committed to knowing it and obeying it? So we, so we see God, his glory, his kindness, in giving us the word. And then verse 13, we see God's glory and his kindness in giving us a leader. So Moses rose with assistant Joshua, and they go up the mountain, and they leave Aaron and Hur in charge. So, so God, in his kindness, tells Moses, hey, don't leave the people around here squandering without any form of leadership. You know, put somebody in charge. So, so Moses, as a wise leader, takes Joshua, who's the next leader of Israel, and takes him up the mountain with him, and he leaves Aaron and Hur in charge, which we know in a few chapters is going to end wildly bad. But still, God is good in providing his people leadership. And God is wise in showing us that Moses took the next generation with him. So, so the call for us here is to go and make disciples, to take the next generation with you, to continue to lead people to God as Moses did. And then, so, they, so Moses and, and, and Joshua, they ascend the mountain, and as they come up the mountain, they have to wait six days. Now, the people of Israel are, are looking at this. And what does the mountain look like? It's got a cloud of fire. What is a cloud of fire? I don't really know. I, I can't, my guess is maybe it's like a volcano, right? All the ash and the fire billowing off of this. They're, they're beholding this, and Moses is sitting at the base of this. How does Moses feel about this for a minute? Like, it's cool to eat with God, but now to go up into that? Like, I, there's got to be a sense of, he's terrified, and he gets to sit there for six days before he goes up into the cloud. So, so the people, what is the glorious nature of God? Well, the people know it in the cloud and the fire. The glorious nature of God is one of protection and it's one of leadership. That's what the cloud and the fire represent to them. But then it's devouring the mountain. We see that it's all-encompassing. It's beyond anything we could Im- imagine. And Moses, he, he finally, after six days, God says, come up into the mountain. But chapter 24 ends with a little bit of sadness. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Do you know what this is saying? It's saying is that Moses has to come back down. He doesn't get to stay there. You see, Moses spent a lifetime going up and down, up and down. The church, we have a mediator who came down for us so that we could go up to him. 
What happened to Moses is a picture of what will happen to everyone who comes to God through faith in Jesus. Glory is our destiny. Revelation 1, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Because of Jesus, like Moses, we will be surrounded by the radiance of God's glory. And here's the thing. We can trust that the mediation of Christ, that the blood sacrifice that Jesus gave is a better covenant, a better mediator. Do you know why? Because when Jesus went back up, he sat down. It was done. He didn't have to come back down the mountain to deliver another message to his people. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Moses came back down, Jesus sat down. He was the better mediator. He was the better sacrifice. Church, God has enabled for us to have a relationship with him through his man, Jesus. He's enabled for us to come to him on his terms, the cross. He's enabled this all for our benefit, which is complete joy and eternal glory. And he's done it all to the praise of his glorious name. We've covered a lot of things this morning. This passage is rich and deep, and we could spend a long time studying it and never plumb the depths of it. But it all boils down to this one question. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with a holy God? He offers you joy and satisfaction. He offers you a people, and he offers you glory. He's made a way through the blood of the Lamb. And there's no other way by which you can come to Him. Do you know Him? If you are outside of Christ, today is the day to repent and believe. If you confess your sins with your mouth and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, He will save you. God offers that for you. For those of you in here who have claimed Christ's sacrifice as your own, there's a question. Are you walking in committed obedience to His word? Are you living in joyous fellowship with him and with his people? And are you meditating on the glory of his nature that's fully seen in the cross? Church, what God has for us, as Paul says in Ephesians, is wildly beyond all that we could ask or imagine. It's good, it's true, and he wants you to have it. He's created you for it, so come to him. We're going to transition now into a time of observing the Lord's Supper I felt like with this passage, it naturally leads into this, that this table reminds us of the body that was broken on our behalf and the blood that was shed that covers us, that initiates us into a relationship with him. This table is for those who claim the blood of the lamb. 